Hey, good morning. Uh, we're glad to have you here. Uh, just to kind of let you know where uh, we've been and kind of where we're going is we're going to be um, wrapping up our uh, kind of study of the book of Titus. We're going to be wrapping that up next Sunday, Labor Day weekend. And uh, the following week after uh, Labor Day weekend, we're going to start a new series that's going to go right through until our Thanksgiving series that's called Start With Why. And uh, the general idea is uh, it came from a book that I read uh, earlier this year, and it was a business kind of leadership book. And uh, what that book taught was that a lot of times companies and people start with what? Like we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to manufacture Coca-Cola, or we're going to, they, they start with the what, when really you should start with why, and why will determine the what. And so after I read this book, I started to notice this in scripture um, often, that there would be these kind of commands to love one another, or as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And in every one of those texts, I started to notice that there is a why involved. Why should I love? Why should I live at peace? Why should I not be concerned about the future? And so we're going to do this series, uh, start with why, and we're going to study some of those passages about what is the why of our faith? Why should I love my neighbor? Why should I feel at peace? Why should I not worry? Um, And and we'll kind of go through and uh, study those passages. So I'm very excited about that series, Start With Why, starts the Sunday after Labor Day. All right, let's pray, and then we'll get into Titus uh, 3, 2 and 3. All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for today, and uh, we thank you for your grace, and uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, May I stay um, out of your way uh, completely today, Lord, um, and you communicate to us uh, what you want to communicate. We thank you for Jesus It's in his name that we pray, amen. So Cheryl had made a comment to me that one of the items on her bucket list was that she would like to see the orcas, uh, orcas in the wild. And uh, that was that was kind of the, the what, all right? That, that she wanted to see them in their natural habitat. Now that's the what, now attached to that becomes a how. Because right? it's great to want to see that, but how are you going to see that? And so we did some research and we found that there was this sleepy little harbor town uh, just outside of Seattle called Friday Harbor. And they had some of the best whale watching, some of the best orca watching uh, in, in the world. And if you want to talk to my son after service, he can explain to you uh, how orca fits into all of that, whether it's a whale or a dolphin or what it is. So um, that's not what this sermon's about. So I'm not going to get into that. But And we discovered that kind of near this area of Friday Harbor, just outside of Seattle, about a 45-minute plane ride from Seattle to to Friday Harbor, our our phones actually switched over to to Canada. That's how close we were to the border. Um, But that there were, there's some resident pods that live there um, all all of the time. And then there's some transient pods uh, that kind of vacation there for the summer, Uh, specifically, it's like their summer home, uh, specifically for the month of July. So we booked a vacation to Friday Harbor. Cheryl had a birthday coming up. I'm not going to reveal what the number was. You can put it together. All right. We took a trip for it. Right. So um, that's all I'm going to say. All right. So we, we took a trip to Friday Harbor and uh, we rented a little uh, bed and breakfast there. We, you know, best orca watching in the world. Uh, we lined up a, uh, a whale watching uh, trip. Uh, we drove out an hour into the ocean uh, to see these orcas and we didn't see any. All right. Uh, now, it was a beautiful, wonderful trip, but still on the bucket list, right, to, to see orcas in their wild. And, and here's why I, I say all that. How is very important. How is a very important question to ask. Now, um, it, I think it's actually one of the most important things that you can ask, because I think most well-meaning people agree on what. 
They, they, they agree on, on the what, that we want to have a healthy marriage. That's the what. That we want to have a close family. That's the what. We want to have a good relationship with God. That's the what. I want to have a good career. That's the what. We, most well-meaning Christians and well-meaning people agree on what. Where a lot of people don't turn the corner is a lot of people never ask the question, how? How am I going to have a great marriage? How am I going to have a great career? How am I going to have a, a close family? How am I going to have the relationship with God I was created to have? And I think a lot of people ask what, not very many people, just in my observation, not very many people ask about the how. How am I going to get there? And this is exactly where Paul lands in Titus 2 and 3. We're just going to kind of pick up where we left off last week that Paul has been explaining to Titus who he left there uh, to kind of pastor the churches of Crete. Paul's been explaining to Titus as, he, as he's leading those churches, how important character is in leadership. Uh, he talked about elders uh, two weeks ago. We talked about having high, uh, a, a high degree of character in church leadership is important. Last week, he talked about the olders in the church, how the olders are mentoring the youngers, and how important uh, character is in that. And the reason this is so important, uh, as we've been talking through this series, that every, I believe everybody's a leader. Because leadership is influence, and everybody's influencing someone. Character and integrity are the qualities that make sure we're influencing toward the right thing. Because you could, you could influence toward any number of things. So character and influence are the qualities that a person can have to make sure you're influencing the people in your life, your children, your grandchildren, your coworkers, toward the right thing, that it's being leveraged in the right way. And so now, in this passage of scripture, He's going to try to teach Titus, as you're serving these churches, and this applies to family, it applies to business, it applies to your life individually, my life individually, this is the how. If you want to see a high degree of character in your life and in the life of your children, he's going to teach us the how. And this is one of those things that not everybody turns this corner. Everybody says, I want to have high integrity and high character. And a lot of times we don't think through the how. And Paul is going to teach Titus what the how is. And I found this to be surprising, what he says the how is. Um, and I'll, I'll see if you do too. So this goes all the way back to chapter 2, verse 1, um, when, when Paul lays this out to Titus. He says, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And then Paul goes on for the next two chapters, and really right up until the end of the book, to describe a high character, high integrity life. This is a holy life. This is a right life. This is a good life. This is a life that is different. This is a high character life. And he says the how, how you get there is tied, Paul says to Titus, to doctrine. All doctrine means is belief. So he says this is going to be tied to what you believe. And so Paul says that the most important thing you can teach the people in the churches that you're serving is to make sure that they are believing the right thing and their life of character will flow from their belief system. Now we understand this, action always follows belief. All right? Your actions will always follow what you believe. All right? Allow me to illustrate this with food, just for a minute. I know this is shocking, but allow me to do that um, just for a minute. I've told you before about one of my favorite desserts in the world is a mile-high ice cream pie from a restaurant called Ram. All right? Let me just describe it to you just for a minute. It's a, we, we found Ram in Indianapolis. I don't know if they're nationwide or what, but it's two types of ice cream, almond mocha, cookies and cream, kind of together in an Oreo cookie crust. They cover it with whipped cream, and then they cover it with almonds, and then they bring this kind of vat of hot fudge 
uh, to your table and you pour it over the top of it and enjoy the dessert. Um, it's life-changing good. It is, it's life-changing good. I've used this illustration like two or three times. That's how good it is, all right? Um, I try not to do that very often, but um, I want you to f- imagine for a minute that I've, I've told you about this dessert and uh, I've told you about it and you go to Indianapolis and you come back and you say, Steve, we ate at Ram. And I'm like, all right, tell me about the mile high ice cream pie. Don't leave out a single detail. Walk me through it. And you say, well, I got a salad. You did what now? <laughs> I got a salad. And you start to go on and on about how good the salad is. They use spinach instead of lettuce. The croutons are to die for. The salad dressing was fresh made. But like, first of all, we're not friends anymore. <laughs> all right. You know, like, I never got to the ice cream pie. We're not friends anymore. But second of all, unless you have a lactose intolerance problem, in which case you're off the hook, but unless you have a lactose intolerance problem, this is a belief issue that you didn't believe me that it was that, that good, and quite frankly, that hurts. But behaving, behaving always, always, always follows belief. When you believe that God has called you to care for your spouse, behaving will follow that belief. When you believe that speeding is going to result in a ticket, that believing uh, results in a behavior change. When, when you believe that showing up late is going to get you fired, behavior follows belief. It always does. And Paul is making this argument to Titus way back in verse 1. He says, before you teach people how to live, before you teach people what a high character, high integrity life looks like, it is important that they understand and, and that they have sound doctrine. It's important that they have the right belief system. And then in verse, verses 11 through 14, Paul tells us what that belief system is so we don't have to wonder. Verses 11 through 14 of chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what? Eager to do what is good. Now, I think this might surprise us that the doctrine that Paul is referring to that you want to make sure is in the hearts and the minds of the people in your church, the doctrine that Paul is referring to is the doctrine of grace, that we are forgiven and we are set free by the work of Jesus Christ. It is the doctrine of grace. And I think this is a little bit surprising because you would think that if you were going to say the one doctrine you need to teach people, if you're going to teach people that they need to live different lives and live holy lives and to be different from their neighbors, like the doctrine you would want to hold over them would be like the doctrine of the judgment or the doctrine of of hell, dangle that over them. And, And hell is real, but that's not the one that Paul chose. You would think that maybe that doctrine would be the sovereignty of God. That God is in charge and God is on the throne and we should follow him and believe him. And that's true too. But that's not what Paul said. Paul said, no, if there, if, when Paul was able to choose one teaching, you make sure people understand this and they will live holy and godly lives. They will live different lives from their neighbors. Paul said, it's the doctrine of grace. 
It's the doctrine of grace. It's the good news. And it's not that those other beliefs aren't important. They certainly are. But Paul, and and I think this would play out in other scriptures as well, Paul believed that the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was like the bedrock, and hell needed to be laid on top of grace, and sovereignty needed to be laid on top of grace, but grace was the thing that everything else set upon, and I think this is counterintuitive. Because for years and years, this goes all the way back to the New Testament, for years and years and years, the church has been afraid that if you tell people about grace, the church, big C church, is gonna break out in Sinapalooza. Right? That, that, that if you highlight the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, people are gonna view that as a license to sin. And they're gonna live less holy lives less righteous lives, less lives that are different from their neighbors. And so there has been this temptation in the church way back from the beginning of don't talk too much about grace because people are gonna take that grace. Wait, I can be forgiven, I can be set free. They're gonna take that grace as a license to sin. And I love what Paul says in this text. Paul says, essentially he says, if that's your concern, I don't think you really understand grace. Right? He, he goes on to say, listen, this grace that I'm talking about, he says, yeah, first of all, it does. It offers salvation to all people. And, and I, I think we, we get that. But the way this is played out in, in most of Christendom is that the way that this salvation has played out is here's what it means. That I am forgiven, so I get to go to heaven when I die. And that is certainly true. But that is almost the totality. When we think about salvation, if you were to interview um, a man on the street interview and say, man, what does it mean to be saved? This is almost the totality of what people would say. That, that man, to be under grace and to be saved, it means that I am forgiven and I go to heaven when I die. And it does mean that, it just means more than that. And let me tell you real quick how we got to this spot in terms of like recent history. In the 1960s through the 1990s, it was the age of two things. It was the age of the evangelistic crusade, and it was the age of going door to door. Now, I don't wanna, I don't wanna bash like the door to door thing because I, my family came to Christ from a group of people that were going door to door. I had just been born, they knocked on the door, my dad opened the door, they said, do you wanna go to church? My dad looked at me and said, I think we need to go to church. And my family's been in church ever since. So door to door, my family became Christians as a result of door to door. But one of the things that happened um, with these evangelistic crusades and going door to door with just like one sit down with somebody is it is impossible to teach the entirety message of Christendom in one sermon or in one sit down. Not even the great Billy Graham can do that. He he can't teach the whole message of Christianity. So one of the things that happened with Billy Graham was he decided that part of his strategy was from his evangelistic crusade, he was going to shuffle people over to local churches so that they could be taught the whole counsel of God. But it still leaves a question that if you are going to have one kind of meeting face-to-face, all right, knock on somebody's door, we want to talk to you about Christianity, you're like, yeah, come sit down, you're going to have that one face-to-face, or if you're going to give one sermon to, to a room full of people about what it means to be a Christian, what does your message become? If you've got one chance, and for a large chunk of Christendom, that one chance became this, don't you want to go to heaven when you die? 
Aren't you worried about where you're going to spend eternity? Don't you want to go to heaven when you die? And that became an evangelistic crusades and door to door. That became the primary message of the church. Say yes to eternal life. Say yes to heaven. Say yes to Jesus' offer to, to eternal life. And that became our cultures. As a result of those two things, I believe, that became our culture's understanding of salvation. That salvation and grace and Jesus, it is saying yes to heaven. It is saying yes to the invitation for eternal life. And listen, it is that. Praise be to God for his indescribable gift, right? That we don't have to worry about our future. We don't have to worry about eternity. He has given us eternal life. But look at what Paul says in this text. He says grace teaches us not to just say yes to eternal life. Grace teaches us to say no. That grace teaches us to say no to some things. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So I think Paul would say for the primary and only message of the church to be, don't you want to go to heaven, trust in Jesus, it is true and it's incomplete. Because if you're understanding the grace of our Lord properly, you are understanding that grace teaches us to say yes to eternal life, but it also teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Grace teaches us to say no. And here's Paul's overarching point, and then we'll get into the more details of this. That living, Jesus helping you live a godly, self-controlled, different from your neighbor's life, is just as much of a grace as him taking you to heaven when you die. That's what Paul's trying to get us to see. That the only grace you and I have received is not that we get to go to heaven, although that's huge. There is this grace where Jesus helps us to say no to ungodliness, where Jesus helps us to say no to, to non-self-controlled living. He helps us to live self-controlled lives. And Paul would say, that is just as much of a grace as going to heaven when you die. One of my favorite gospel passages, good news passages in all the Bible is in Titus 3, where Paul reiterates this point. So let's get into um, uh, Titus 3, uh, verse 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready to do what is, whatever is good. So right now he's talking about living this holy life, living this different life. To slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But, one of the greatest words in all the Bible, but when the kindness and love of our God and Savior appeared. Right? So when grace appeared, when the kindness and love of our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So eternal life's a part of this. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want to stress these things to you so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. 
So Paul mentions this whole going to heaven thing. And then he also, at the end of it, mentions that remind people that they need to be devoted to doing what is good. So godly living, the right kind of belief system here of grace and the good news and what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, godly living flows from an understanding of grace. All right, so grace is the mindset. We need to walk in grace. We need to love grace. We need to be reminded of grace. And godly living flows from an understanding of grace. And these two passages together, two, chapter two and three, give us, I feel like, such a good preacher today. Three reasons. Three reasons. They're not alliterative, so I failed there. But there are three reasons in these passages why godly living flows from grace. Reason number one. Grace reminds us that if it needs to be forgiven, then it needs to be avoided, right? Grace is a reminder to us that, man, Jesus Christ is willing to forgive, but if it needs to be forgiven, it needs to be avoided. So grace, in this weird way, reminds us of the nature of sin, and it motivates us to avoid sin and live holy lives. Notice the ways he describes sin uh, in uh, chapter 3. You were foolish, Thanks, Paul. You were disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Do any of these sound like good things? If you were talking to a friend or whatever and say, I really think you were foolish, deceived, disobedient, and just following your own pleasure. That's not a compliment. Right, so Paul, these are not good things. Then he starts out the list with the word foolish because I think you know it's the law of first mention that whenever you see a list, the first mention usually has special significance. And so Paul leads it off by foolish because I think everything would fit under the banner of foolish. And the Greek word here for foolish is exactly what you think it is. It's lacking intelligence while demonstrating moral thought. All right, a uh, fault. Excuse me, uh, not thinking morally. It's lacking intelligence while demonstrating moral thought, uh, uh, fault. This is describing the moment that we all come to when we say, what was I thinking? What was I doing? I was so foolish when I said that or, or did that. This is kind of the nature of, of sin. The first sin of Adam and Eve way back in the book of Genesis 3 kind of uh, sheds a little bit of light on this for us, that God had told them they were free to eat from any tree in the garden, but they must not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, for when they eat of it, they will surely die. And they were deceived, and they were foolish, and they sought their own pleasure, and they decided to do it. And the Bible gives this interesting phrase, that their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened, and they realized the gravity of what they had done. This is the, what was I thinking moment? I was so dumb, what was I thinking? And then they hid. Sin has a way of taking us to this place, that when we overspend consistently and constantly, and we don't follow what the Bible teaches on money, this moment comes, oh, what was I thinking? Low interest rates till Jesus returns, you know? Why'd I do that? That was dumb. When you overeat consistently and don't follow the Bible's teaching on self-control, this moment comes, it's like, oh man, I'm kind of paying for, what what was I thinking? When you pursue pleasure without regard to what God says about purity, this moment comes. It's the, what was I thinking? That was so foolish, that was dumb moment. And here's the good news. Christ forgives you of that. I hope you understand that. Jesus Christ forgives you and he forgives me for every foolish, deceived, dumb, thing we've ever done. 
He forgives us on the cross of every foolish thing we've ever done. He forgives us of that, but he also wants to help you avoid it in the future. And both of those are grace. Both of those are the grace, the loving grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is that he forgives it and he says, let's not do that moving forward. You, you, actually, you actually see this with the woman caught in adultery. He says, she's brought before Jesus. He has this whole interaction with her. And he says, does anyone accuse you? And she says, no. And he says, neither do I accuse you. Uh, now, leave your life of sin. He says, let's not, let's not engage in this moving forward. And both are his grace. If it needs to be forgiven, then it needs to have be avoided. And he helps us with that. that. That's God's heart. Here's the second reason. Godly living flows from grace. Grace reminds us that everything Jesus does is a good gift. Grace reminds us that everything Jesus wants to do in your life and mine is a good gift. There is this kind of fallacy that nice Jesus forgives my sin and grumpy Jesus tells me what to do. And if you are a parent, you understand that that is not true because you do both of those things for your kids and you would consider yourself nice. All right? So, so, so ne- neither of those things are true. But everything Jesus wants to do is a good gift. We serve a, gu- a, a good gift-giving God. <laughs> Highlighted that, so I, and he still screwed it up. But. So our son this last summer turned six, and he wanted um, a saltwater tank, a fish. And Cheryl and I were very entrenched in the position that this wasn't happening. Be- because we were like, you know, we all know who's going to... Um, take care of the saltwater fish and they're kind of high maintenance and we're, we're just not interested in it. So one day we, we were talking about it, about what are we going to do? And Cheryl came up with, I think was an idea from the Holy Spirit. She said, what if we do hermit crabs? I said, I like the idea of hermit, but they're going to, yeah, that, that sounds really, that sounds really good. And, and so we went um, over uh, his birthday. We took him and uh, we, we got him two hermit crabs. One is named Superman. The other is named Flash, um, which is hilarious. And um, it has been a good gift. Not maybe as good as the saltwater tank that he wanted, but this has been a good gift. And grace is a reminder to us that God gives, Jesus Christ gives you good gifts. Everything he does is a good gift. Let me show you this in uh, chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. This is gift number one, is that he redeems us. The Bible's word here uh, is to pay a ransom. That the Bible says the wages of our sin is death. Death means that we are not able to have the relationship with God that we were created to have. Our sin was separating us from our Father. God was not okay with that. So Jesus Christ came, uh, he went to the cross, and he uh, paid for our sin. That we were in captivity, and he chose to do that. We need someone to pay for our sin. The Bible teaches that. So I was reading a short story the other day. Um, a kind of funny kind of short story about these guys. Uh, it's a story about a, a couple guys that had kidnapped this little boy and were planning to seek, this isn't the funny part, but we're planning, <laughs> just wait for it. All right. they, they were planning to seek like a ransom for this little boy. And they got the little boy to the hideout and this little boy um, was talking constantly. Uh, he was playing pranks. He was insisting that his kidnappers play games with him all day long. And so the kidnappers called the father and said, we'll lower the ransom if you'll let us bring him back. We'll lower the ransom if you'll, if you'll let us bring him home. And the father gets this call and he knows how difficult his young boy can be. And so he says, well, I'll take the little boy, I'll take my son back if you'll pay the ransom to me. 
And uh, by, by, the end of the, by the end of the story, these guys ended up paying the father the ransom uh, to bring this little boy back. And this is, this is one of the questions of the Bible is, who's going to pay the ransom? And the wages of sin is death. Who's going to pay for that? Jesus came, he went to the cross, and he paid our ransom. He paid our debt. He forgives our sin. There's an old hymn that says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it. He washed it white as snow. And this is a gift. Like I said, one of my favorite gospel descriptions is here in Titus, that he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done. He didn't save you because you're so awesome or so good. It's not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. And the way this has been translated in is we just kind of stop right there. That's the good gift Jesus offers. He forgives our sin. He takes us to heaven when we die. And we forget that verse 14 goes on. Verse 14 says, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. This is the forgiveness of sin, the pain of our debt. And it goes on to say, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And this is a good gift too. This purifying thing that he redeems us, but he also begins to purify us. He wants us to begin to walk away from this sin that enslaves us, this sin that he forgives. He wants to see us walk away from it. He wants to motivate us to live holy lives that are, that are different. This is how Paul can say, at one point you were foolish and you hated one another and you, were, you slandered and you were slandered and now you're eager to do what is good. This is a grace that we are able to do this. This is a grace from our Lord and Savior. So part of what it means is, listen, just like you can't save yourself, there wouldn't be a Christian in this room that would articulate to someone that's not a Christian, you need to save yourself. Anybody that has an understanding of the gospel message understands you can't save yourself. You can't, you, you can't take yourself to heaven. You need Jesus. You need his mercy. You need his grace. And just like that is true, the purifying part of that is also true. Let me be very, very clear. You can't live a holy life on your own. You, you can't walk away from foolishness and all of the things in that list. You can't do it. You and I need Jesus. We need his example. He's the most holy person that ever lived. We need his example. We need his Holy Spirit who helps us and empowers us to do this. We need his church to encourage us. We need his word to, put us, uh, in, to, to point us in the right direction. And it's incomplete to say to people, the gospel message is Jesus takes you to heaven when you die. It's true, it's incomplete. Is yes, he redeems us, but he also seeks to purify us so that we can live different and holy lives. Both are grace, both are good, and both are are his work. Last thing, Jesus remind, uh, grace reminds us to trust, to trust Jesus with our whole life. All right? Paul makes this point in verse eight. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want to stress these things to you, so that those who have been trusted in God, who have trusted in God, may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Those things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Here's what Paul is saying to Titus, is there's gonna be some people that you're ministering to and loving that have trusted Jesus with their salvation and their eternal life, but they haven't trusted him yet with this life. He says, encourage them to do that. They've already taken a big step. That They have trusted Jesus with their eternity. That's a big deal. They've already taken a big step to trust Jesus with their eternity, but now they need to trust him with their present. 
And in some ways, that is a bigger step. I think in some ways, it's easier to say, someday Jesus is gonna, he'll, he'll forgive me, he'll take me to heaven, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust him with that. Sometimes it's harder to trust him in the present. We've trusted him with the next life, we need to trust him with this life. And grace is a reminder to, that, that we need to do this. That man, he's good. He gives good gifts, and he can be trusted. So for some of us here, you've already trusted him with your eternity. I know I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm trusting Jesus. I, I, I believe he's gonna fulfill his promises, and, and I, I just believe he's gonna do that. But maybe you're here today and you haven't yet trusted him with your parenting, or your money, or your career, or your family. And grace reminds us that he is trustworthy, and he is good, and you can trust him with everything. I think there's a lot of Christians that are afraid of grace. They shouldn't be. And I think it's because they don't understand grace. I, I, I see churches that are afraid of grace all the time. Because it is, it's like, man, if I, you know, if, if we talk about grace from the pulpit, it's gonna be like sinapalooza. It's not gonna result in holy living, it's gonna result in sinful living. Or, or parents are like, man, we can't ever show our kids grace. Not that you shouldn't hold them accountable for our actions, but man, if we show our kids grace, it's gonna be like sinapalooza, and we're, we're kind of afraid of the whole thing. And, and, and here's why, let me put this on the screen for you, and this is the kind of bottom line sermon in a sentence. They think grace is an invitation to sin, and it's not. Grace is an invitation to follow Jesus. That's what it is. Grace is an invitation to follow Jesus. And grace is found in the cross. It certainly is. But you know what? Grace is found in the commands. Grace is found in Jesus. So grace needs to permeate our church and permeate, permeate our lives and permeate our families. We need to point people to Jesus and say, follow him. Because character always follows grace. I think we've separated things. We say, man, grace is going to heaven. Uh, on, on one side of it is grace is going to heaven when you die. That's over here. Jesus does this work. And then we kind of separated out this like holy kind of character-filled, integrity-filled living as a separate uh, thing. And, and some people, like I said earlier, some people go even further from that. And it's like grumpy Jesus takes us to heaven, or, or happy Jesus takes us to heaven. Grumpy Jesus tells us what to do. And, and that, that is not fair, and that is not right. Both of these things are grace, and both of these things are, are good. So I think the conversation in Christianity, and I'm, I don't have the power to do this. This is just me. If I could change the conversation in Christianity, I would. You know what i change it from? I would change the conversation in Christianity from, do you want to go to heaven when you die? And I would change it to, you really should follow Jesus. You really should follow Jesus. I would change the conversation from eternity to who are you following? Because when you follow Jesus, rest assured, you do not have to worry another minute about your eternity. It is signed, sealed, and delivered. Stole that obviously, but you don't have to worry about that, another thing. But Jesus is also gonna do this other thing. He's gonna be your example. He's gonna give you his Holy Spirit. He's gonna give you his word, and he's going to purify you going to purify your family. It's going to purify your finances. It's going to purify your life. And both those things are grace. And both those things are good. So I want to encourage you to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. He will lead you. All gifts from Jesus are good gifts. And he'll lead you to a good 
place. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. Uh, I have some theories as to, to what happened, but they're just one guy from Decatur's theories. I, I don't know. But we ended up getting kind of fixated on Jesus takes us to heaven, and he does. But he wants to redeem us and purify us. He wants to seal our eternity, and he wants to change our living. And both are good news, because we want to be more like him. Help us to do it. Would you begin, as we sing this next song, um, to convict us if there are these areas that, um, those of us in the room, that we trusted you with our eternity, but there's this area that um, our relationship, our marriage, our family, our career, there's this thing, money, that we're like holding back from you that we haven't trusted you with? Would you remind us as we sing this song how good you are and that we can follow you and trust you? We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. We stand, we're gonna sing an invitation song and uh, we would love to pray with you. We're gonna have a couple counselors up here with me um, and we would love to pray with you. Um, if you're here and, you know, as I was praying that prayer that, man, there's this thing I'm kind of holding back, um, we'd love to pray with you about that and just ask for, for God to continue his work in you and for us to have the courage to follow him. Um, if you uh, haven't yet trusted Jesus with your eternity or with your life, we'd love to talk to you about that as well um, as we sing this song together. You come forward. I hear the Savior say,